Well, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. Many of you know that uh, for the first half of this year, men's Bible study went through the book of Ruth. We spent, I'd say, more than a dozen weeks working through this wonderful portion of Scripture. So I decided, why not try to do the entire thing this morning? Don't want you to come behind the curtain too much, but I had originally intended to preach Isaiah, and as I thought about it, and thought about how much fun we had as men going through the book of Ruth, and then thought that we're starting a series in the Minor Prophets next Sunday in Sunday school, and Rick will be back plowing through Ephesians. I thought, why not take a shot at an Old Testament narrative in one fell swoop? For a change of pace. So that's what we're going to do this morning. The book of Ruth. As an aside, at care group today, any of you who have men who are in the Bible study, those men are automatically more accountable for discussion. So make sure and uh, tap them on the shoulder and ask them to correct the things that I miss or to fill in the details that we had fun talking about on Tuesday mornings that we just simply will not have time to get to. The book of Ruth is rightly acclaimed as a wonderful work of storytelling. If you're familiar with it at all, you're, you know that. It, it includes elements of tragedy and suspense and romance. And it does all these things while highlighting God's work in the lives of his people. As the writer explicitly points to God's gracious activity in the lives of the main characters. From that broad perspective, the book of Ruth depicts an Ephrathite's family's providential redemption from really tragedy to their surprising place in the larger story of Israel's monarchy, Israel's line of kings, namely King David. But there's more to be gleaned from the details of the story than just that God's providence brought King David through this particular family. The author of Ruth primarily communicates his intentions through the lives of the three main characters, who we'll see are Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth. But the lives of those three characters in this story are, they're not like incidental. They're not simply just a teaching device for a lesson on providence. Nor are their stories recounted as an insignificant means to an end just to emphasize how David got on the scene. That's a part, but... Not the point. Importantly, the author's descriptions of life circumstances, his portrayals of the characters of this story, his depictions of their responses to tragedy, his depictions of their responses to blessing, all of those things are put together in this wonderful story to convey a theological message about love and covenantal faithfulness. So at a time in Israel's history where God's people were characterized by really abject covenantal unfaithfulness, as we'll see in just a moment, a woman, a Moabite woman at that, and a man from Bethlehem display covenant faithfulness and love to an astounding degree. They live out what it means to be faithful to Almighty God and to be faithful to others because of your faithfulness to Almighty God with astounding distinction. Listen to these words from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 7, 9, God's law, that serve as really a backdrop for the entire story 
of Ruth. The Lord says this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. I hope to show you this morning that one of the author of Ruth's purposes, if not the primary purpose in telling this story, is to demonstrate that the Lord does, in fact, show his loving kindness to those who love him. And uniquely, that loving kindness is then enacted to others through his people as they're faithful. In other words, faithful followers of the Lord are actually channels of his faithful love to his children. Now, you're going to hear this term, loving kindness, faithful love, steadfast love. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that if you've been in our church for any time. And those are translations for really the theologically dense term that we say hesed, which is a term that denotes uh, mercy and grace and kindness and faithfulness and love and commitment, all kind of rolled into one. And so loving kindness or steadfast love or some of the more common translations, I'll say loving kindness this morning, but it's more than love, but it's not less than that. And it's more than faithfulness, but it's not less than that, right? It's more than grace and mercy, but it's not less than those concepts. And so it's a rich term. So every time you hear me say loving kindness, think of all of those things kind of rolled into this one specific characteristic that's preeminently the Lord's, as he said, he's the one who keeps loving kindness. But interestingly, in Ruth, it's people who keep loving kindness, who keep hesed. And it's particular people that do that because they're faithful to Almighty God, to the Lord. And because of that faithfulness, God enacts his loving kindness to other individuals through the loving kindness of these faithful followers of the Lord. What we're going to do this morning is just tell the story fairly quickly and then come back and walk back through and try to pick out some of the themes that kind of help us see at least one purpose or one of these emphases, a theological focal point from this story. Okay, so it's just, again, different kind of lesson this morning. Normally we're working detailed verse by verse, and today we're going to do broad swaths so we can get this whole story in, be familiar with the story, and then go back and try to pick out some of the details that help us to see how the author weaves together this important message that he wants us to take away. Part one of the book of Ruth begins, of course, in verse one, and really the first six verses are background. They provide background that set up the main story. What we learn in these first six verses is that a man from Bethlehem named Elimelech takes his family from Bethlehem to Moab to find relief from a famine that had come upon Israel. That's this certain man in verse 1. There was a famine in the land, and they went to Moab, and he had a wife and two sons. While in Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving his wife Naomi a widow. His sons then each take Moabite wives. And they remain there with Naomi. The text tells us that they were there in verse 4 for about 10 years. Subsequently to the taking of wives, Naomi's sons die. And so at the end of this background, what we're left with is Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law, with all bereft of their husbands. 
So the background section ends. This story ends on this low note, this note of tragedy, with Naomi and her daughters-in-laws planning to return to Israel because they've heard, the end of verse 6, that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Now, several pieces of information from this background set up the whole rest of the story and help us rightly understand some of the details that are later drawn out. The opening verse sets this story in the time of the judges. It was in the days when the judges governed. That adds substantial color to the circumstances of everything that happens. First, we just want to note that this time reference means that the Mosaic law had been given. So faithfulness on the part of God's people is measured by what we read in Deuteronomy. So for anyone during this time in the story of Ruth to be marked as faithful, we have no further to look than God's commands in the Mosaic law to see what did God expect from his people. The standard of measure, in other words, for faithfulness came from the law that they had been given. But maybe more noteworthy and more familiar to us is the fact that the period of Judges is characterized as an awful time. Right? If you've read through Judges, if you're familiar with Judges and just the Bible timelines, this was a dark period with little glimmers of, of hope here and there, cyclically, in the life of God's people. We know the cycle. The people regularly forsook the Lord. They turned to idols. Then that apostasy brought the Lord's judgment. And then captivity. He would raise up judges to rescue them mercifully from their affliction. And then after deliverance, the people ultimately would not turn and walk in repentance and faithfulness to the Lord. And that sequence happened over and over again. And you can see that noted in Judges 2, verses 13 through 23. Ultimately, those cycles repeating over and over again culminate in widespread unfaithfulness summarized famously in the Judges where there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We see that in Judges 18 and then at the end, Judges 21, 25. So the opening of Ruth indicates that there was a famine And that was during the time of the judges, which seems to place the background events during a period of judgment in this cyclical pattern. Famine in Israel, according to the law, was an unmistakable covenant curse. You can read about that in Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28. When they were in the land, when they disobeyed, famine was a curse of the Lord for disobedience. Thus, when we read that Elimelech, a man from Bethlehem, takes his family away from Bethlehem, which is known as the house of bread, to find relief, he, he seems to be avoiding the very curse that the people of God were enduring under his judgment for their disobedience. What is more, he's seeking to avoid that by leaving the promised land and going to the land of an enemy, Moab. Again, Bible history, Moab was the son of what we could say which would be an understatement, an embarrassing time for Lot, right? When Lot was drunk and had inappropriate relations with his daughters, Moab was the the tribe that came from this relationship that Lot had with his oldest daughter. And the descendants of Moab, the Moabites, were then a constant thorn in the side of Israel. They got in the way on the way from Egypt to the land of promise. They got in the way early in Judges after the conquest of Canaan. The Lord's view of Moab as a result of that was very severe. He prescribed that the Moabites were restricted from ever entering the Lord's assembly, Deuteronomy 23. 
Worse, in Deuteronomy also 23, Israel was never to give them aid, never to assist them, because Moab did not assist the Lord's people on their way to the promised land. Now, marriage to Moabite women was not explicitly forbidden in Deuteronomy 7. However, the history and God's view of Moabites would imply that that certainly would, have been look, would not have been looked upon favorably. So taking a Moabite wife as a consequence of dwelling in the land of God's enemies at the beginning of this story is not something that should be looked at as, as favorable. So the deaths of Malon and Chilion, that is Elimelech and Naomi's sons, and the apparent barrenness of Orpah and Ruth over the course of 10 years seem to be the author's way of telling us things were not well with this family and those things that were not well match up very closely with the curses that we see covenantally given by the Lord in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. In other words, unfaithfulness would result not in the Lord's blessing, but in the Lord's hand of judgment. And we'll come back and see a little bit more of the significance of how this plays out later in the story. But that is important background for then what happens. In verse 7 then, after hearing that the Lord had visited his people back in the promised land, note, that's where Naomi hears that the Lord is, is blessing. She then has to leave Moab. So they decide, verse 6, that they're going to return. So she departs from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-laws are there with her. Now at some point along the way back, they decide, look, Orpah, Ruth, you need to stay. You need to stay in your homeland. You need to stay in Moab. You would be better off. Verse 8, she says, go return, each of you, to her mother's house. They go on, they have this heart-wrenching conversation through this scene. There's weeping, there's, it's emotional, it's charged, there's, I mean, they, these women have spent many years together, all having lost their husbands, and so this point of separation is hard. And yet Naomi urges them to, to go, to go back, and one of the reasons she says, Verse 11, I, I, have, I can't raise up more sons. I'm, I'm too old. There's no hope for you of a husband in the land where I'm going. Being without a husband in those days certainly would have made life more challenging. That was at the high, highest priority for them. And that is what Naomi prays for them. In verse 9, may the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And then as they beg her, plead with her, no, 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 we'll go with you. She says, you're not going to find what you need most if you come with me. After more heart-wrenching interaction, Orpah leaves, but Ruth is resolved to stay with Naomi. Naomi and Ruth then enter Bethlehem, causing a stir among the townswomen as Naomi comes back. See that in 19 through 22, and that then occasions Naomi's bitter assessment of her current circumstances. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara or bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Bethlehem will then be the setting for the remainder of this story, and the author has zeroed us in now on Naomi and Ruth. We'll come back to look at some of the problems that come out in their dialogue and the way that the author wants us to see those things later. But a gut-wrenching time, a difficult time, but a return home and Ruth faithfully accompanying Naomi back to her homeland. 
part three, then, they're in Bethlehem. But there's a note, there's a comment that starts part three, a background from the narrator to let us in on something. He says, now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The way this is told, Naomi may be aware of this, but it's not coming up in the story. This is something that's background. This is for us. The narrator is sort of letting us in on a piece of information that will help us interpret the events and to see some of the wonder at the Lord's work. Essentially, a wealthy relative, Naomi's deceased husband, is there. So then, as after that comment, the section's events start, and really they take place over the course of one day. So all of chapter 2 is one day, beginning in verse 2, ending in verse 22, bookended by Ruth and Naomi talking with one another. And the situation is that, look, they're going to live together. They need to figure out how they're going to sustain themselves. So Ruth, ever faithful, says, let me go and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And Naomi says, go. And we need to note, remember, this is the time of the judges. And where's Ruth from? Moab. So when she says, and may I find favor in one that who I'm going to glean, that isn't like a nicety. Like, well, I'm going to go out to where everybody gleans and there's tons of landowners out there and it's obvious I'll get in and I'll just be kind and say thank you. No, she's dependent on someone else to show gracious kindness. And as a foreigner... From the land of Moab, a woman apart from her husband or any husband in the time of the judges, this was a challenging prospect. But what are they going to do? They need to eat. So she goes and she begins to, to glean. Now the Mosaic Covenant had specific provisions for gleaners. Gleanings or leftovers were to be left behind for the needy and those outside the community of faith. We see that in Leviticus 19, Leviticus 23. And gleanings are also supposed to be there for widows. And so she's pursuing something that the law prescribed provision for. But again, this time of the judges. Law keeping was not really the order of the day, as we already noted. So Ruth's success would depend on the faithfulness of the reapers or a landowner being kind and in honoring the Mosaic law. So she finds her way unknowingly to where else but the field that belongs to Boaz. As you know, so we know that. We're reading going like, oh, look where she ended up. The author says she just happened to come upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Illinois. And of course, we've already been let in on the secret. This is a wealthy relative of Naomi. But Ruth doesn't know that. So she's there. She finds her way unknowingly to this field. And there she finds the grain, the gleaning she was looking for, and so much more. Boaz greets her. He says, don't go to another field. Stay here. I've, I've looked out for your security. I've commanded nobody to deal harshly with you. When you're thirsty, get water. Verse 9, she falls on her face and says, why have I found favor? And Boaz tells her why. And it's because he's heard of what she did for her mother-in-law, Naomi. She recognizes that she's found favor, uncommon favor from Boaz. At mealtime, Boaz lets her eat with him, gives her a portion of his meal, which again is astounding, beyond all that was expected. So she has a wonderful first day on the job. We can say it that way. 
And the action of that whole day ends with this second dialogue where Naomi finds out who she got to glean with. So Naomi starts thinking and says, wow, listen to this. This is who this man is, Ruth. And then goes on and says, it's good that you go out with his maids, verse 22, so that the others do not fall upon you. And so she stayed close. Verse 23 is sort of a summary. She stays close then in this field and she gleans. So this is kind of a summary of what the ongoing work in Boaz's field and life would look like for Naomi and Ruth. Ruth is in Boaz's field with his favor and she's gleaning and providing for Naomi. As sometime later, chapter three picks up and Naomi says, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you. So she's identified Boaz as a redeemer, right? And she's now determined to act on behalf of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. That's where the story is. And so Naomi goes on famously, right, to define this really risk-laden plan and gives Ruth these very careful instructions at the beginning of chapter three for how she is to essentially propose to Boaz. So Ruth, ever faithful, commits to Naomi's plan wholeheartedly. Verse five, all that you say I will do. The story's so foreign to us, it's humorous. She goes in the threshing floor where Boaz would have been there at the end of harvest. It's dark, it's nighttime. She's supposed to uncover his feet after having been prepared for this proposal. He is literally startled in the middle of the night by her proposal. And but she res- he responds again with favor in an unexpected way. She tells him, asks him to essentially take her into his family, to take her as his wife. And Boaz, of all the possible responses to him or to her that he could give, he says, verse 10, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in this city know that you are a woman of excellence. So Ruth has gone from destitute to gleaning to now finding favor from Boaz, now carrying out Naomi's risky plan. And Boaz responds with favor And this is incredible. And then he says, verse 12, now it is true I'm a close relative, however. And there's a plot twist. There is a relative closer than I. So you can imagine some of the disappointment on Ruth or in Ruth to hearing of this. But Boaz lets her know that he will take care of these matters. He's going to go and see. He says, if this other redeemer will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. And then he, make arra- he makes arrangements for her to stay there, protecting her dignity, his dignity. Let it not be known that you were here. He gives her an offering. She departs the next day, takes this extra grain to Naomi as a, as a show of faithfulness from Boaz that he's going to go and work this matter out. And Naomi says at the end of chapter three, wait, he's gonna take care of this. He's not gonna rest until this matter is settled. So at the end of chapter 3, you have Naomi and Ruth waiting. Boaz is going to take care of some business. It's very important for them. And there's suspense in the story. How is this going to work out? And then the part 5 begins in chapter 4 as Boaz seeks provision 
for the house of Elimelech. He goes up to the gate, acting just as Naomi expected. The gate would have been where legal matters and city business were adjudicated. And he goes there and he finds Mr. So-and-so, this other relative, and he tells him the situation. Now, initially, when only Elimelech's land is in view, the other relative is seemingly eager. He says, I'll redeem this. However, Boaz nimbly introduces Ruth into the equation, and then plans change. The closer relative says, this is going to have some sort of effect on my ability to carry out things with my family. And so now Boaz is left with the option to fulfill the, the very request that Ruth made and that Naomi had desired, and we see that. Verse 8, the closest relative says to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And then he goes on and they work out this transaction in the custom of the day, like we do, by exchanging sandals. So the scene ends. Boaz has arranged to take care of this. The elders and others are praying blessings on this union. And the situation is resolved and completely distinct from how it started back the beginning of chapter 1. In verse 13, we have part 6, which really wraps up the narrative and helps us to see the Lord's amazing hand of kindness and goodness and the problem that goes all the way back to Moab, that is, childless husband not having a husband, and then the resulting childlessness is resolved. And it's resolved by the Lord directly. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So we have the immediate news of a child by divine blessing at the end of this story. So now not only has the Lord provided for Ruth and Naomi by providing food through Boaz and providing a husband, now he has completed all of the outstanding difficulties in this family situation by giving a son that would become shelter that would raise up the clan of Elimelech and provide care and family line and the inheritance that goes along with that. And as we'll see at the end of the book, a king, King David. Now, as any of the men in the study could tell you, that was a high-level survey that left out a lot of details. But let's go back and just pick up some of the themes that the author puts into the details that help us see the focal point of the story. In one sense, you could tell this story in five minutes, right? Difficult circumstances happen in Moab. We don't know the decisions that led to those, but we know what happened. There was death. There was a barrenness. These ladies come back destitute to the home, not knowing what's going to happen to them. And then through small acts of faithfulness, there's little glimmers of hope. There's provision from gleaning and Then this provision in God's providence turns into the opportunity for, uh, as we'll see, this this redemption, this this taking the family line and seeing in faithfulness provision for that family through God-ordained means in his law. And that actually happens to a Moabitess of all people. And not only is she able to go into this house where she would find provision for the rest of her days, she's given a son by the Lord a son who fulfills the, the gap, as it were, that is between the line of Elimelech that had been paused by death that would eventually result in David, the king. But the way that the storyteller tells us the details of the story, he highlights the loving kindness 
of the people that are involved in this story. All the way back at the beginning of the story, the background, the story opens with unfaithfulness. I think we should interpret the first six verses by seeing unfaithfulness in the house of Elimelech. They went to Moab. They left the promised land. His sons took Moabite wives, and they're all dealt with severely. And this sets up a contrast, ultimately, through the rest of the story where we will see acts of faithfulness that are in accordance with God's law that are then attended by God's blessing. In contrast to the opening, the lives of both Ruth and Boaz in particular demonstrate faithfulness to Almighty God, to the Lord, as the story unfolds. And their faithfulness, contrasted with Elimelech's unfaithfulness, results in blessings that extend beyond their immediate generation and beyond those generations, and even as we see at the end of the book, to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the verses 7 through 22, the developments that would come later are set up. At the very beginning in verse 8, look at verse 8 and look at Naomi's prayer of blessing for her daughters-in-law. She says, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. That, that terminology, kindly, that's the terminology of loving kindness. Naomi is is saying, may the Lord show loving kindness to you in accordance with how you, Ruth and Orpah at this stage, have shown loving kindness to me. That's her prayer. So the first mention of loving kindness in the book is connected with not the loving kindness of Almighty God that needs to come to bless them, although that's asked for here, but the loving kindness of Ruth and here Orpah that was demonstrated to Naomi in the death of and after the death of both her husband and their husbands. Look, this is shocking. Naomi bases her request for God to show loving kindness on the loving kindness of Moabites. Now, if you're reading this story and you're familiar with the time of the judges, who was unfaithful to the nth degree? God's people. Who here is being extolled as faithful? Not only is faithful, but showing loving kindness, showing the very attribute of God that he says, I will do. Moabites. Moabite women had acted in accordance with God's own covenant faithfulness. And that's a stark contrast from what I believe we see in Elimelech. Ruth's subsequent response to Naomi highlights this very attitude and heart of loving kindness. So, remember, there's, there's turmoil, there's tension in this relationship as they're on the, the road to Bethlehem, and Naomi's saying, go, I can't do anything for you. You're not going to have what you need from me, and Orpah eventually leaves, but Ruth says, I'm not going to leave. She says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Now that is a nice thing to be read at weddings, but here it is a Moabitess, right, who is saying to Naomi against a black backdrop and against hopelessness that's waiting in Bethlehem, which, by the way, Naomi has already told her, look, you're not going to have a husband for me. Like, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to raise up an heir for you to, to fulfill the obligations for this family. 
And Ruth says, but I'm going to go with you anyways. So she's loyal. That loyalty, that loving kindness that is hesed-type kindness, steadfast love, is picked up on in verse 11 and 12. Boaz says that he has heard of what Ruth did for her mother-in-law. The town knew. So now a Moabitess is an example of faithful love to this town of Israelites. And Boaz says, look, we know of what you did. It's been fully reported to me how you left your father and mother and the land of your birth, this is in chapter 2, verse 11, and came to a people that you did not previously know. So her decision was profound. But it wasn't merely loyalty to Naomi. The framing of this dialogue indicates that this was loyalty to Almighty God as well. The options were to return to the house of her mothers and to her gods, verse 15, the gods of Moab. And she says, no, I'm going to be with you and your God will be my God. So she made a choice to commit her life to Naomi, Naomi's people, and Naomi's God. And the telling of the story makes clear why did she do that? Because of a love for Naomi and because of faithfulness to God. So Ruth's astounding loving kindness is set up in the first chapter. What's interesting is Naomi doesn't see it. Or if she does, the storyteller doesn't want us to see that. Look at the end. So you just heard, right, we're getting to read ahead. You heard in chapter 2, verse 11, Boaz says, look, it's been reported to me what you did. Evidently, the story of Ruth saying, no, I'm going with you, made an impression. In other words, it was an obvious act of faithful love and steadfast love, loyal love and covenant faithfulness to Naomi. But Naomi says this when she comes back, with Ruth at her side, I went out full, but I came back empty. So during a famine, she left the promised land. But she says she went out full, and now she's coming back to the promised land during a time when the famine has been ended by Almighty God. And she has Ruth at her side. And yet her assessment at this time is that she's empty. Now she rightly ascribes her circumstances to Almighty God. In other words, Naomi is not just some bitter old woman with bad theology, okay? She has pretty good theology, but she doesn't quite see everything clearly yet. And the storyteller wants us to see that. She doesn't see everything clearly. But what does Boaz say when he first interacts with Ruth? It's been told to me what you did. I know the kind of person you are, and it's astounding. But it doesn't seem that Naomi saw it yet. So there's a contrast, too, in Naomi's circumstances. So when Ruth gets to the field, we meet another person who demonstrates loving kindness to the nth degree, and that's Boaz, right? That's Boaz. So Ruth says at the start, I need to find favor, which is a related term to grace, to kindness. So she needs to see someone show her kindness. Remember, she's demonstrated kindness. We've seen that now. But she now needs kindness from an Israelite as a foreigner. And as the story is told, we find that she finds the field of Boaz. And even though the law prescribed gleaning, Boaz goes above and beyond. He doesn't just permit her as a foreigner in accordance with the law to glean with the gleaners. He gives instructions. He looks out for her protection. He gives her provision that a gleaner and a foreigner at that had no right to. He opens up his table. He opens up his provision. 
He allows her to have a greater portion of his crops, verse 15 and 16. He seeks her, perf- her protection, chapter 2, verse 9. He reflects what Deuteronomy says in Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 14, 29, the very heart of the Lord. The Lord says, I have a heart for the foreigner. I have a heart for the widow. I have a heart for the orphan. And Boaz here demonstrates the very heart of God against the backdrop of black, the black time of the judges. So now Ruth finds this loving kindness in Boaz. And through their interaction, you see Boaz demonstrating this steadfast love and loyal kindness and his care for Ruth. And then while he's doing that, he's what? He's highlighting Ruth's loving kindness to Naomi. You see the emphasis? So through Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi, she ends up in a field. Through God's providence, by God's providence, he brings them together. Then because of Boaz's loving kindness, Ruth finds this amazing provision that she could have never expected. And so all sides in this equation are demonstrating the heart of the Lord. She's identified as a Moabitess throughout the chapter to highlight just how incredible it is what Boaz is doing. So she's known in town, and according to chapter 2, verse 11, she's known as one who demonstrates kindness. So through both, and don't miss this, yes, God's providence, but through the faithfulness of both Boaz and Ruth, the Lord is providing for a family in need. Boaz, for his part, sees his care of Ruth as an extension of the Lord's care. Verse 12, may the Lord reward your work. He gives a blessing, asks a blessing upon Ruth. And your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. How would God answer that prayer? Through Boaz. Boaz ends up as the answer to the very prayer that he prays here for Ruth through his loving kindness. So the Lord's loving kindness is enacted through the loving kindness of the faithful. Right? It's not just abstract providence. It's obedient God seekers, followers of the Lord, keepers of the covenant who are demonstrating God-like love toward one another and the Lord works through that in a profound way. In chapter 3, then, Naomi, as she takes center stage in in planning, we see loving kindness highlighted again. Ruth is faithful. She carries out what Naomi set out for her. But Boaz's loving kindness, again, shines against the backdrop of these details. So, yes, Naomi's concern for Ruth is, is an act of love. She needs to have a husband, right? And Ruth, reciprocating that care, carries out the duties, But look at chapter 3, verse 10 again. What is highlighted? He says to her, so, and I I mean, right, it would be a lot of fun to get into all the details here. I mean, take a shower, put on a fresh cloak, go at night after he has enjoyed his meal for the evening and is asleep, sneak into the threshing floor, sleep by his feet, uncover his feet. When he gets cold, propose, okay? That's description, not prescription, okay? Okay. That, that's not a portion of scripture that you read and make immediate application. I think we're all clear on that, but just in case. Okay? But what's he say after that? What's he say in verse 11? Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do whatever you ask. Why? For all my people in the city know you're a woman of excellence. Wow. The only other place this terminology is used is Proverbs 31. Of the Proverbs 31 woman. The same phraseology. 
But before that, what's he say? May you be blessed of the Lord. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first. What is this? Well, the first kindness was coming to Israel, coming to Bethlehem with Naomi. You know what the last kindness is? Is that she didn't have to follow through with Naomi's plan. She didn't have to pursue Boaz. She didn't have to agree to be taken under Boaz's wing in order to raise up an heir for the clan of Elimelech. He makes all that clear. He says, you didn't go after young men, whether poor or rich. She would have been free to seek out someone else to marry. But she knew the implications of marrying Boaz for Naomi, which is another astounding act of loving kindness. Boaz then takes center stage with his loving kindness by agreeing to carry out the task. Now, it is not required, it would have not been required for Boaz, by the law, to marry Ruth. It was not a foregone conclusion, in other words. If it would have been, then this story is probably not in our Bible. There's probably not suspense as Naomi comes back because it would have been obvious who would have taken Ruth under his wing and been required to marry. And we also see that by the fact that the first relative had an option. And then Boaz has an option. Why do I say all that? Because when you get down in the details of the text, it shows even further that Boaz is constantly going above and beyond the letter of the law. This is not a one-to-one leveret marriage. It's not a one-to-one kinsman redemption. It's kind of a combination that we don't have proof text for in the law. And at every step of this interaction between Boaz and the other relative, he is a contrast to this relative. The relative would have experienced great cost to take Ruth. Boaz says, I'll do it. Right? Boaz is older. Ruth didn't have to do it, so she is sacrificing to do this. Boaz has land. He has what he needs. He's not in it just for the land. He sees that this would be an act of provision for Naomi, and he calls Ruth kind for that. So he seeks provision for this house because of his loving kindness. His integrity is on full display. And through his loving kindness, God enacts loving kindness to Ruth and as a consequence of that to Naomi. And that's how the whole situation is brought to a resolution. They're given a child whose loving kindness takes center stage there. God's, right? The Lord's. He enables them to conceive. And then all the townspeople proclaim blessings on Boaz. And they pray blessings on Naomi. And then to tie a nice bow on this lesson about God enacting loving kindness through the faithful love of faithful followers of him. The very end of the book, as Naomi has her reward, her gracious provision from God, that is this child that will carry on the name. What do the townsfolk say? The neighbor woman, remember? They're there at the beginning. Naomi says, don't call me, Naomi. Call me bitter because I've returned empty. Listen to what they tell her. The author puts this praise strategically on the lips of the town people, the town's people. A son has been born in Naomi, right? They're, they're rejoicing in that. What do they say before that as they pray? They ask that this son would be a restorer of life and a sustainer of her old age. Now listen to this. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, and is better to you than seven sons. 
has given birth to him. Do you see the contrast? Naomi came and said, I'm empty with Ruth at her side. At the end of the story, the same townsfolk that heard that say, Ruth's better you than seven sons. You lost two. Your daughter-in-law is better than seven. Incredible testimony to show that this whole time, from that moment of Ruth's profession of faithfulness to Naomi to the end, God was working through her love of Naomi and then coming alongside of that Boaz's love of God that then was extended toward love for a foreigner and a widow. God brings about this marvelous resolution to their problem that there was no male heir. And then to extremely truncate the conclusion, then God shows loving kindness to the nation of Israel through this line by bringing about the king after his own heart. And I don't think it's simply serendipity that the king after God's own heart comes from the line of these two people who are in our Bible who demonstrated the very heart of God in the way that they lived. But a king is given, ultimately, David, the king. And what do we learn in Matthew 1? Who did we get? Who did the world get? Who did the nations get from David? Jesus Christ, the greater David, who is a relative of Boaz and Ruth. Yes, providence that the Messiah would come through this line, connected with all the other earlier lines. But do you see the emphasis on their faithfulness, on their obedience to God's commands, on them demonstrating the very heart of God and God working through that as they came together and fulfilled God's purposes? And then the blessing of that faithfulness extended beyond their lifetime. I know we know this, it's obvious, but it's worth reflecting on. Boaz and Ruth did not know that the Messiah would come from their union. But their faithfulness paid dividends long beyond their days. What are takeaways from this that we don't have time for? Well, for one, it's a reminder to us that God rewards the faithful. God rewards the faithful. And the body of Christ, we're given ample opportunities to demonstrate self-sacrificial love to one another. And God demonstrates love to us through the love of those who we're in this body with. Another takeaway, your small acts of obedience, leaving gleanings, as it were, for Boaz. Your small acts of faithfulness may pay dividends and rewards that you never know in this life, but will count for eternity in a way greater than we may ever imagine because God brings about his purposes through the faithfulness of his people. No obedience is too small. No faithfulness is too trivial. God honors those who honor his word and he works to demonstrate loving kindness through those who show loving kindness.